This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hey everybody, it is I, your host, Nick Scheist, and we're back for Season 2, Episode 12, moving right along. We've got some good stuff on the horizon coming up for you, including Showgirls and Morbius. If there's a movie you'd like me to cover on the show, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to me at Bad Movies We Love with an L-U-V on Twitter or Instagram, or you can email me at nick at com. I'd love to hear from you. And today I'm talking to my friend Kevin from the Scheist International Film Club. And, you know, sometimes when you record a podcast with people from all over the world and there's a giant ocean in between the two of you, audio fidelity is not always fantastic. And we faced that hurdle with this episode. I did my best, and I hope that it works for you. So without further ado... Join us as we dive into the mystery of the action comedy Hudson Hawk from 1991. He must have just read the script and been like, oh, yeah, this is a joke, right? So I'm just going to have fun with it. That's a very jarring shift in tone. Yeah, Ayala looks like he's out for like a casual like paddle boating experience. They're not even a one second gag, and it's like, what was that exactly? You know, his stunt doubles in there throwing like spinning back kicks to the body. Hey mister, are you gonna die? Uh, he communicates through a collection of business cards that he has like pre-printed with messages on them. Somebody loses their head, we'll say. Did I just hear that correctly? And of course I did, because I had the subtitles on. Kevin, greetings. Thank you so much. Uh, I know it's evening for you. It's late morning for me. Uh, But thank you for joining me to talk about Hudson Hawk. And welcome to the show. Can you tell me what it was that made you suggest this movie? I know you reached out to me. You wanted to do a, do an episode of the show, but what was it that made Hudson Hawk come to mind? Um, I think Hudson Hawk kind of is... I remember when I started getting into movies, like seriously, back in the, the 90s, Hudson Hawk was the the de facto kind of goes of every joke, of every, like, is it, is it a big flop? It was kind of, it was, yeah, it was de facto joke, the vanity project, and stuff like that. Um, and it was a film that I ended up enjoying more than I thought I would back in the 90s. Um, and I revisioned it a couple of years ago, and it was better than I remembered even. Um, it's not like, I have it. I have it on my letterbox. I think I gave it like three stars. Like objectively, it's to me, it's three stars. But there's a lot that I love in this film that I'm hoping to get into some of that. There's so many film podcasts out there, and they talk about oh, I don't cover this movie for some reason, even though it's such a high-profile disaster at the time. And so I always enjoy. 
Yeah, this is a 1992 movie, night released in 92, I think. Uh so it's, you know, coming on the heels of what Die Hard, maybe even Die Hard 2, but Bruce Willis is a bona fide action star at this point in his career and I think some of maybe the expectation of what this movie uh, was supposed to be versus what it is kind of collided. <laughs> and maybe that's where uh, some of the negativity came in because as you know, your wife had just popped in and I was asking you whether or not you liked this movie. You said, you know, within the first five minutes, she was out of it. And at that point, you know, Bruce Willis isn't even in the movie. This is all going on in uh, in Italy in the past. And if you had bought tickets to go see a movie, uh, knowing that you like Die Hard and that this was uh, like sort of a action heist movie and you walk in and you've got Leonardo da Vinci accidentally like inventing a gold conversion machine. <laughs> I could understand you not knowing what the hell was going on and feeling like maybe you got cheated a little bit out of what you expected. Yeah, I, I can see that. Sorry, I, I was just saying I'd seen you put up the uh, poster on Twitter and it's like, catch the excitement, catch the adventure, catch the hawk. And like you said, the first five minutes is set in like Renaissance Italy. Every character is speaking Italian and there's no subtitles. Um, <laughs> and you have this kind of narrator crack, cracking, cracking jokes as well. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a really kind of strange kind of setup for a film. I suppose the, the kind of story to it is as much as what I know from what I've read is that in a song back in the early 80s, and they were trying to make a film out of it. And when we finished the one, Joel Silver about this, Joel Silver's like absolutely. Um, and I think originally it was written as a straight-up action film, and then Bruce Willis was like, no, let's, let's do something else. So I think he probably thought it was like, okay, I can do a bit of comedy, I can do some action, I can do some singing, which is what he was reading at the, at the time. Um, and it just ends up being a mess of a film. It was interesting to see him in this role at this time, and it's like he's not a bad comedic actor um, at all. You know, when he went on and did uh, what whole nine yards and whole 10 yards, like a little bit later in his career, he got to have fun with it. And then, you know, towards the, the later end of his career, he was doing a lot of sort of like straight to video action films where he was almost like doing kind of like what Nicolas Cage did, where he's taking a lot of smaller projects, but working a lot and sort of being like the one big name that's in the film. So you know, especially with what's gone on with his health over the last couple of years. Um, it's it's really sad because he was such a talented actor and him and uh, Danny Aiello do all the singing of their own songs in this. So like you said about him wanting to maybe incorporate that and have some uh, creative freedom in terms of what he's bringing to the screen as this character. Uh, I think we got sort of like a pretty well-rounded uh bruce willis experience so even in die hard like he cracks jokes uh he has a sense of humor mm. but it's uh very tonally different than this movie and here it's like a lot more slapsticky there's 
some jokes that we'll get to that I can't believe I actually made it to being in a film at some point. And it was a lot of fun. And honestly, like I thought that I had seen this movie, but I hadn't. The movie that I'm thinking it was a different Bruce Willis movie from the 90s. Uh, and I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's the one where he's on the boat. Is that striking distance? Yeah. That's okay. Striking. So yes, I, I confused this. So this is the first time I had ever seen Hudson Hawk, but this whole time I thought that I had seen it thinking it was this other movie. So I got to go into this cold and I'm thinking like, this isn't how I remember this movie starting. And then when when it's very clear that I have no idea what I'm watching, it becomes a lot more enjoyable because it's just so zany. And I can't really fathom that this got approved at any level because it's way too funny to be like a typical action film. So it doesn't really fit the mold for that. But the action is, you know, fairly reasonable in terms of like there's a lot of fight scenes. Uh, there's a reasonable amount of explosions. So it's like a little too action heavy to be your standard comedy. But he still goes from I think he was in Rikers in New York. It's let out and then they travel across the globe. So it's an adventure film as well. And it just it it checks a lot of boxes that typically don't get checked together and i felt that the tone for the movie was kind of in line with almost like tim burton's batman but also maybe something like naked gun so it's cross it has yeah. like it has a very particular like visual style to it especially with all of uh, the supporting cast, like the James Coburns and um, the uh, what's his name? The big guy, uh, Andrew Bignarski and David Caruso and like that oh, yeah. group of people. Sandra Bernhardt's character is incredibly weird. Richard E. Grant mm. as well. Like they're all almost <laughs> like cartoon supervillain type characters. And you've got yeah. sort of like the Suicide Squad on one side. And then you've got like the rich sort of. Lex Luthor types that are sort of scheming and not really I mean they're not quite as they're not anywhere near as bright as a Lex Luthor but they're rich and they're powerful and they have this scheme that's going to give them more power and just all of it I'm like I was just so taken aback by experiencing all of these things in the same movie and I'm so glad that I got to watch it for the first time. And I'm so happy that you brought a movie like this to the show. I mean, it has, you know, a 5.7 on IMDb. That's like fair. It's like, I understand that, right? Like you said, three stars. That's about a six out of 10. It's Metascore is terrible at 17. So we're going to take a look at some of those reviews later. But you yep. and I had talked and you had said that you were going to try to watch this again. Uh, did you get a chance to sit down and go through it all? I did, yes. I sat down and watched it last night, and I took notes. Uh, I was very studious. Um, not not like paragraphs or anything like that, but I was just taking down bullet points of things as they happen. When Bruce Willis gets in a fight with James Coburn later on, James Coburn is slapping him back and forth, and he's like, he's really overacting it. Um, 
And like you said, the naked gun parts. Yeah, I, I was watching it going, there was a couple of jokes that felt like something out of airplane or hot shots or he's running across the roof of the Vatican. He starts hitting the TV with his big, you know, cane or <laughs> Scott was like, that's a real like Zucker Abraham Zucker joke. Um, there was loads of little asides like that. There was a literally grand little, like he has a fax machine in the car and he throws the paper to the, the shredder and the shred, paper, shredded paper seats out the back of the car. I was like, <laughs> that's such a really weird particular choice that they made. Like it's, it's a, they're not even a one second gag. And it's like, what was that exactly? Yeah, it's happening like in the background. Yeah, it's, it's so strange. I think you're, what you're saying was Bruce Willis's humor. I think Bruce Willis' humor works best when he's kind of playing that kind of deadpan, jokey style of humor. Like, he, he tries to play this, like, really big with terms of, like, his jokes. Um, and some of the jokes he has are just, they're, it's almost like they're overthought, I suppose. Um, there's one, I don't know if we're going to get to it, you know, where he fights the the butler near the end that has the two big knives to come out of the sleep. Somebody loses their head with uh, the James Bond one-liner. But instead he goes, look, I'm down here. Looks like you won't be attending that hat convention in July. <laughs> really makes sense. But I still laugh at it because it's so stupid. <laughs> uh, it, it has a lot of that, surprisingly, but like they have fun with it. and. It it's it's one thing to have something be stupid, but not fit the tone. Right. But it's another thing to have something be intentionally stupid. And like you said, the like sort of the joke structure of uh, Richard E. Grant sitting in the back of the limo, getting a fax from one machine in his car. And then I don't even know if he reads it and he just puts it straight into the paper shredder in the other side of the car and just shoots <laughs> out the back. Yeah. That's such a, a particular choice, as you said, and it's all happening passively like it does. He doesn't do anything to indicate that what just happened was important. It's just a, like a weird show of uh, his wealth and his power in this moment. And mm. it's it's one of these finely tuned things that happens in this movie. And another one that I really love before uh, we get on to some other things there's the Mario brothers of all things that are in uh, the ambulance with Bruce Willis and they're <laughs> on like the, I guess it's the Brooklyn yeah. bridge. It may not be, I don't know if it really was the Brooklyn bridge, but they're in this ambulance chase. Bruce is hanging out in the back and similar to that scene in the limo, there's a lady in a taxi who flicks her cigarette out the window and Bruce catches it and smokes it. And then stops to just say, oh, gross, that's menthol and then tosses it away. So like something like that is just so weird to be happening in the middle of a very elaborate chase scene. Like if it were Die Hard, like, you know, maybe the cigarette gets flicked in his face and he kind of gives a passive like, hey, lady, what are you doing type of moment of humor to her but like yeah. he's, this is a pretty big action piece to kind of stop it and to tell that joke in the middle of it and i really enjoyed that the movie doesn't ever take itself too seriously to stop and have fun with that no I mean, and i agree like this again when he's he's hanging off the back of the gurney and this carriage just pulls up beside this girl and he's out because 
hey, mister, are you going to die? It's like, <laughs> like, she doesn't ask for help. She doesn't do, like, anything. She doesn't, like, call the cops or anything like that. But, yeah, it's just one, one of my favorite little gags was in that that scene where he kind of, the, the gurney kind of moves away from the ambulance and he gets to the toll bridge and he throws the change to the toll bridge and the, it's just, I remember seeing that when I was younger, I remember those one of the things that stuck in my mind. But yeah, like the action, like one of the notes that I have here is like, you can't, can't fault the production design, the sets, the props, the costumes. They're all like, you can see that money was spent to make this film. Um, they didn't, it's not like, you know, we're supposed to make purposely bad movies nowadays. Like this was like, they were going for it with this, you know, they, they had brought in the writer from Die Hard. They had brought in the writer and director from Heathers, I believe. And, um, believe this. and they're like, they wanted to make something out of this. You know, the, the cast is, 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 is stacked, as the kids say. But like, recently I rewatched um, Ace Ventura, the first Ace Ventura. And there's a bit in Ace Ventura where a guy shoots at Ace Ventura during the car chase and he catches the bullet in his teeth. And I was like, that feels like a joke in a Hudson Hawk. And then uh, even watching it, watching the film again last night with Richard Grant, it's like it feels like he's just a couple of steps away from what Jim Carrey was doing in Ace Ventura. Like he's jumping up on tables and he's, you know, thrusting his hips and he's making these big gestures. And it's like it feels very, it feels like a performance that a lot of people saw and probably said, oh, maybe I could take one or two things from this. Um, one of the I'd read some bits from Richard Grant's book about his performance, especially Bruce Willis kept telling him to you know, go bigger, go bigger, go bigger. And then when Bruce Willis said, moved away from earshot, the director was like, "Yeah, don't take it down a couple of notches, please." <laughs> so that kind of speaks to the is a slightly turmoil on set, which kind of resulted in what we got. But yeah, it's just such a fascinating just a collage of things, like you say, a heist movie, and then there's like. It's like the Blues Brothers with the musical numbers. Like, big action scenes. Like, there's that, when that ambulance crashes, like, that's a big ambulance flip and explosion and the whole thing. And there were uh, a couple of stunts where they, like, jumped off roofs that reminded me of that bit in Legal Weapon. It's a real time capsule. And with, oh, this is the way I read it. This is what Bruce Willis thought, yeah, this is the movie I want. Because it's his only story credit. So, like, Bruce Willis in his head was like, this is what I think at this point in my life a film should be. And even more telling is this is what I think a cool character is in nineteen ninety one. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And like you said, the the money that was spent on this movie is fairly obvious. Like they don't hide the fact that you know, it wasn't a thing where hey, we're just like gonna sort of spend this on the cast and let the cast do it. Like in the first six minutes, like when the when we go into the castle and we see like Da Vinci's lab, like the set piecing of that is massive. They had to build all that from scratch. It all moves together. So you put a lot of people to work in order to build this set and have it function the way it needs to on camera. And even the way that they did the camera rigging where it comes sort of like from over the top of where it is and then back behind the scaffolding and then follows Da Vinci uh, through the door into the next room. Like that definitely is not cheap. And if you were to tell, I guess your producers that we're making a Bruce Willis action comedy and I need you to build a set for Leonardo Da Vinci's lab. And then 
that's going to be the first six minutes of the movie. Like I, you got to pull your punches and just, Hey, we need money. Cause we're building like a, a castle set piece. Uh, and it needs yeah. to be elaborate. So, uh, you just write the check and you'll see it when we get out on the back end. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like they, it doesn't feel like they scrimped on anything else though, to make up for that. Like, I suppose there's one really kind of obvious early 90s special effect with the, the parrot liner, which we saw this Lanky McDowell, but for the most part, like a lot, of, most of that stuff is in camera and there's, it just looks, I suppose it looks tangible, even though there's parts where you're like, obviously Bruce Willis is something, and obviously Danny Aiello is not moving that fast. Uh, <laughs> but at least, at least you can still see that it's, it's a real person doing it. Like there's very, even the, even the, the guy at the, at the start where, they use what, and I've written down here, Chekhov's paradliner, because you see it at the start and then it makes a reappearance at the end. Like, you can see that guy is, is, is genuinely kind of flying that thing along. And I think that makes a, a huge difference. Um, you know, watching the film, yeah, they really put the effort into trying to, like, instead of just like, uh, I suppose you wouldn't have CGI'd it back then, but like modeler miniature or something like that. It's like, yeah, we're actually going to build this paradliner and get it to move around, you know? Yeah, because, you know, somebody's got to climb into that thing and hopefully, you know, not crash. <laughs> uh, so there was a yeah, like, well, before we get too far, uh, we're going to go to the trailer soon here in a second. But you had mentioned the way like Danny Aiello is moving in this movie and he's not moving too fast. And like one of the funniest scenes to me was their first uh, break in back into the museum together and he's riding the skateboard and like the way he's sitting on it. <laughs> He's just like putting the least amount of effort possible into this. While Bruce Willis is on his knees, he's like taking it seriously. Ayala looks like he's out for like a casual like paddle boating experience, as if he's, he's like in, there. He's in like a two man kayak where he's in the back, not not uh, paddling at all. Yeah, it's like he's sitting in it. He's they're on the skateboards, kind of moving along. So and Ayala was just like sitting down, like like yoga pose. He's kind of pushing like with his two arms to try and move himself along. But uh, one of the one of the notes that I have made, and I always talk about this about the film, is that like obviously because Bruce Willis's name was supposed to go he seemed to be like he seemed to be really trying hard to make everything work, the comedy and how cool the character was and how cool the character looked and was, and Danny Aiello just breezes into this film and he is so much more charismatic and likable and charming. And like, I don't mean that as a slight against Bruce Willis, but like, he's just so, Daniela is just so naturally good. Um, and there's even parts that I was watching it, like with my wife was, as I say, was in the room. And I was like, Bruce Willis really fancied himself a singer. And then Daniela is over there, like giving it socks and he's doing really good. And Bruce Willis is kind of trying to, you know, he's, he's kind of singing in a hushed tone. So Daniela was the other side of the room. He's like belting it out, you know. Um, yeah, that, uh, he's, he's such a treasure. Yeah, and in that scene that I'm talking about, where they break in to the museum and that they're on the skateboards, to your point about how Ayello approached his character and this movie, and sort of what the tone was versus Bruce Willis. Like Bruce is coming from Die Hard, uh, well, both Die Hard one and two, um, and so he he has like his action chops already lined up, so. This is a scene where they're trying to sneak around and not get caught by the guards. So he's the one who's down on his knees. He's below the level of the window. He's looking around corners. He's being cautious. He's like you said, 
trying to breathe some level of legitimacy into the character, into the story that they're telling. Danny Aiello is so casual that the top of his head is above the window line as they're going in the hallway. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's why I was laughing so hard. I was like, you could clearly see his head <laughs> over the window. So I, I love that, like you said, he just breezes into this movie and he must have just read the script and been like, oh, yeah, this is a joke. Right. So I'm just going to have fun with it. While Bruce is the guy who's really uh, like putting in all the legwork to make it serious. And I would say like Coburn a little bit, too. Like you need his character there to to give it some gravity, because if there isn't uh, a character that is sort of twisting the thumbscrews on Hudson Hawk, then you kind of really will lose your way. So you needed a, a menacing um, villain with gravitas to really like hold down and anchor that side of the film. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think Coburn works well as the antithesis, sorry, whatever that word is, to literally Grant and Sandra Bernard. Even though he's not playing, like they're up to 11, but he's at maybe like an age or a nine. But again, like I have in my notes, I just have written down here. James Coburn is so, so goddamn good because, like Danny Aiello, he shows up and he's just, he's got this big James Coburn smile and his big James Coburn voice. And it's like, you kind of sit up and pay attention when he's talking because he's just, like you say, he brings that much more, you know, like you say, gravitas to, to the film. And I think he's, he's a vital cog in the machine, even though he has a very, very peculiar fight scene near the end, <laughs> which reminded me again of like Naked Gun Airplane. Uh, like if he, Bruce Willis has this, he has this big stick and he's trying to hit James Corbin with him. James Corbin does these three spinning roundhouse kicks and he <laughs> makes the stick shorter every time he kicks it. But then just as he's finished, he stops and he kind of, as if he's dizzy and it's just so funny and it's such a great choice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's at the end of the movie. So, I mean, we're going to get to that eventually, but since we're there right now, that yeah. fight scene, like you said, you got Coburn, you know, his stunt doubles in there throwing like spinning back kicks to the body. He's, he's a very yeah. uh, kick heavy fighting style. And then he's sort of he unceremoniously, unceremoniously, does attempts a flying jump kick that just sends him over the wall of the castle uh, <laughs> to just like cap off what was already a ridiculous fight scene at that point. So uh, like it was just such a weird like tone shift from, okay, like we know he's the bad guy. Oh, okay. He can actually fight and he's like capable of physically beating up Bruce Willis's character. And then to make just like a huge tactical error on the edge of the <laughs> castle, uh, just like really yeah. just brought it all back down to, I think like the tone that it needs to be in that moment. Cause you can't have too serious mm. of a fight scene there or else it gets, no. it's like, it, it feels even more out of place there. Yeah. But it's like you said, uh, I think you're, you're, you buried the lead on that because before he go, attempts to do that jump kick, he kicks, he's, he's kicking Bruce Willis like in the chest and in the back and in the chest and in the back. And then Bruce Willis just starts moving back and forward from the waist of his own volition. And it's like, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Like I've heard it described before. It's like, a, you know, a street fighter when your opponent is stunned and they just kind of rock yeah. back and forth and Coburn lines up to do the kick and Bruce with his bends over to pick up his hat and Coburn yeah. just sails <laughs> over the top. <laughs> it's such a 
unceremonious end for that character. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you picked up on the the name of his character by any chance. Uh, it's I don't know. It's not ringing any bells. Like in the moment, who was it? If, it the the character's name is George Kaplan, which is the name of Carrie, the spy who's Carrie Grant was mistaken for in Northern Ireland. Oh, so there's a bit of pointless trivia. Hey, I mean, it's nice that they brought in some like cinema history, and that's not the only that's not the only bit of it either. And it's, I, I would say, it's a testament to the filmmaking. Even though, like, if this is not your cup of tea and it doesn't work for you. Like the budget's there, the cast is there, the performances are there, the humor is there. And even if it doesn't necessarily like land and, you know, it flopped and whatever, like this movie was made with intent and with care and with focus. And maybe the the particular product that came out the other side of that, like didn't sit well with people. But I don't think Mm -hmm. that detracts from the level of attention that went into making it. And I think that is a distinction. And in watching it, I can clearly see a lot of those intentful choices. And it's like, okay, I see what you're going for here. And it's not like this aimless mess. That's just Oh, well, it's bad, because Oh, it's unfocused or they're the villain's plan wasn't a good plan or, you know, whatever the little like nitpicky type stuff was. But I, I can't wait to read what these terrible reviews are when we get to the end. Yeah. Before we get to the trailer, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Bad Movies We Love is brought to you by Cool Hats for Cool Cats. Do you ever look at your cat or any cat for that matter and think they'd be so much more stylish in a hat? Well, I know I do. As a hat wearer myself, I know that when I have a nice hat, I feel nice, and I want all my feline friends to feel that same level of confidence. All types of hats are welcome, and there's no hat that Cool Hats for Cool Cats doesn't love because they're an unofficial 501c3 charity that relies on donations from kind folks just like you to donate your unwanted hats. Worried about cleanliness? Well, don't be. All their hats are steam cleaned to the highest standards before going through their state-of-the-art shrinking process. Once your furry friend picks out their preferred style, they'll be measured and fitted by a professional hatsmith to make sure they're looking their best and are completely comfortable with their selection. While you wait, you can enjoy treating your fuzzy family to a nice glass of catnip tea to help ease any anxiety around the selection process. Wouldn't your cat look fetching in a fedora, perfect in a pillbox? confident in a cowboy hat or astonishing in an ascot you already know the answer is yes but feel free to browse their selection online or just head over to cool hats for cool cats in person and let one of their trained stylists treat you right that's cool hats for cool cats all right are you ready to watch this trailer let's see this summer Bruce Willis is back in business. Thanks for saving me, Jeff Cobb. Yeah, look, and action movie. Is booming. Yeah, you even have the... voiceover guy for the movies. Yeah. It's Bruce Willis. Check, please. The best cat burglar that ever lived. I didn't want to do it. All I wanted was a cappuccino. But he can't retire. Maybe nobody told you. Quit stealing. <laughs> if he wants to keep on living. <laughs> Watch your step. Oh, we get to that tuxedo. Hold your breath. Yeah. Hang on for dear life. <laughs> 
fetch. The Hawk. Good play, That's a lot of explosions well as Danny Aiello. Yeah. Andy McDowell. Hudson Hawk. Sounds like a party. It was a party. And yeah, like that would absolutely. I'm sorry, go for it. You're good. I was just gonna say, like, if you saw that trailer in 19, somewhere in 1990 or 91, the year before the film came out, that no way prepares you for the film that you watched after seeing that trailer. Not at all, not even close. They like they they kind of hint that like it's going to have humor right they show they show you like the back end of a couple of jokes so almost like john mcclain's sense of humor where the joke setup isn't there it's just more his reaction to the situation that happens to be funny and a scene that they showed in that trailer or at least the back end of it is you know they just kind of you see him like plop down at the table with andy mcdowell and there's like feathers flying so you don't get any of the context of like why that's funny. I don't even understand why that's in the trailer because the only thing you see is like him plopping and then some feathers shooting out. But that whole scene of him landing on the pigeon coop uh, or the, the chicken coop, breaking it open, having the chicken like standing on his back as they're driving around the stunt car as well. And then it just <laughs> happens to go by the restaurant where he's on his way to meet her for dinner. He falls off the second story of the truck and right into the seat at the table. And then it's like a little like, you know, sleight of hand magic trick where he's got feathers in his hand and he gives it a little cough and shoots the feathers out. <laughs> like that whole scene doesn't like the, the what we sh see in the trailer there just doesn't do that whole setup justice because without any of the context, it's just like a, a moment of like flash. Right. So it's interesting to see that obviously you're going to cut the trailer to make it look as close to the most marketable film that you think it can be. And if you start showing uh, some of like the craziest stuff in this movie, then you get away from it. But you had mentioned something earlier when we were talking and you had mentioned uh, sort of like some connective tissue to the tone of Ace Ventura. Right. And I'm curious if you like if this is a Jim Carrey movie during that early 90s era, does it is it received differently than because it's Bruce Willis? The expectation at the time was this is Bruce Willis and he does action. And unless you knew him from Moonlighting, maybe then you know he does with the comedy. But I, I'm not sure if The Last Boy Scout had come out before or after this, but it was around that time. So like you're you're three kind of fairly prominent Bruce Willis action movies back to back and if you're into movies at the time you see Joel Silver's name attached as well and Joel Silver would have been coming off the back of Lethal Weapon 1 and 2, 2 Die Hards Last Boy Scout like he was he was a big name at the time as well um, I don't think people were prepared for type of comedy to come from Bruce Willis but you say if there had been you know, like, yeah, Jim Carrey is a good example. I'm trying to think of who would have kind of predated Jim Carrey in that kind of slapstick comedy kind of way, but I kind of drawn a blank. But yeah, at that time in the nineties, I, I don't know. Seen as too, yeah, just, yeah. Bruce would have been just too, too kind of. Yeah, he makes jokes, but they're more quips. They're not like you know 
you know, hand slapping, hilarious like that, which is kind of what he's trying to go for here. But yeah, it, it's, I think if it, if it maybe a few years later, um, maybe if it, like, if maybe Bruce just had done like the whole nine yards and then gone into this, they'd be like, oh yeah, Bruce Willis can do comedy. But I don't think people were fully prepared for the type of comedy and the tone of the comedy. Like, I don't think people were prepared for the tone of the film because it, to me it felt like a, a PG-13 premise in a rated R movie is what I had written down. Because there's a couple of times where like, there's just like they're effing and jeffing left, right and centre and like there's people getting their throats cut, their heads cut off and I was like that's a very jarring shift in tone mm-hmm. to make and I suppose you know, you would have expected that level in the Die Hard, but when you're watching a trailer like that, you're thinking, oh, this is going to be a bit lighter. Maybe I can bring some kids to see it. And it's like, no, it's not that at all. And, you know, I suppose if you could say, you would have parents who like Die Hard and say, oh, this is a Bruce Willis movie. It looks harmless enough to bring the kids to see it because they're too young to watch Die Hard. And then you get, you get what you get then. And it's, you know, try bring up a couple of kids to see that film and sitting through. Italian with no subtitles at the start. Yeah, if you brought your kids to see that movie, uh, you probably walked out in the first six minutes, to be fair. And then you lived the rest <laughs> of your life thinking that this movie was terrible, but you never gave it a chance. But like you said, when the the like evil butler gets introduced for the first time and whips out his uh, retractable switchblade sword from his sleeve and cuts <laughs> cuts Hudson's uh, parole officer's throat like that's a very stark change in the film that we're watching at that point and you do get the idea like oh this is serious like we're not just messing around with hey we're gonna you know rob a museum or we're gonna kind of have this like you know witty back and forth with these two characters people can die in this and uh die <laughs> in a very graphic fashion because one of the scenes that I really like was super surprised by was when the auctioneer just explodes. He's in the middle of auctioning <laughs> off this horse and then he detonates. Yeah. And uh, so like there was obviously a bomb somewhere, but it looked like he's the one that explodes. And they did a lot of the practical effects work to get a double in there and cut it. So you see that happen. Mm-hmm. Use that uh, a second time later in the movie. But even that is yeah. like it it happens. And it's so surprising. That's much uh, less visceral than seeing somebody get their throat slit. And you can see that Bruce Willis's character is sort of reacting to this situation like, hey, um, I w- like I knew that this was like dangerous to a degree, but the way that they sort of dispatch the security guards with the rope and then like the head bonk with the sound effect and yes. uh, the yeah. handcuffs, like that's all just like, you know, kind of this <laughs> like a very cartoonish way uh to get out of that situation Absolutely. only to watch a guy get his throat slit, slit right in front of you uh not too shortly after that it's it's very uh very dark very quickly yeah and and even the the scene where they're going to do that like and benny Ayala has like a life ring they're gonna crawl from one building across and he throws it and it lands on like a it lands on like a metal spire and it makes this like bell ringing sound like you know the carnival where you hit the thing with the hammer and it makes that bell mm-hmm. and it's like why, why did it make that sound and then like you said you have the, the moment of extreme violence but just beforehand you have Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello jump off the roof through an awning and then it smash cuts to Bruce Willis just 
sitting into a recliner. And I remember when I saw that the first time, like when I was when I was a lot younger, I was like, is, are you living in an apartment directly under that awning? Or is what <laughs> what did I miss here? I had to stop and think about that too. I was like, did he just break through the roof? Or I was like, oh, it was just like a snap cut where they use that mechanism to show him like appearing in this other room. I was like, it's such a weird yeah. choice to make and to edit it like that is so particular. Like, cause you have to be watching that back thinking, Hey, you know, we filmed the whole thing of them crashing through the awning and then, okay, do we want to show them like get up and dusting themselves off and like getting away with it as the police cars come to the scene and they're already out of there? Like you've seen in a lot of other heist movies where the guys are getting away with it and the sort of the sirens in the background and then go to the apartment or let's just cut all that out because all these other movies have already done this already and let's try something and see how it turns out. But in the application of it, especially since it was, this was the first time seeing it for me, I was like, wait a second. I thought that was like the awning in front of a hotel or something. Like, how did he end up in this? I'm like, oh, okay. I see what you're doing there. Yeah. <clears throat> so impressive. Yeah. It was, it was like, I appreciate stuff like that sometimes because, like you said, you know, you don't want to see them, you know, dust themselves off and run from the tops and then cut to him walking into the room and sitting down in the chair. It's not as visually, like, it, it does, it's, it's confusing when it happens. But it's more visually interesting than just him walking into the room and making a joke, sitting down, and then the rest of the scene playing out as normal. Um, I did like there was a little, there's a couple of little things that I noticed this time that I hadn't spotted before. Like you said, when the when the oxygen explodes, there's all this chaos, and it there's kind of slow motion like the balloons flying around this, and I thought and I said that there's an arm flying through the air. So obviously there's a dummy exploded, and there's bits of it flying everywhere, and. Uh, when Bruce Willis is explaining to Danny that, you know, we, we robbed a four statue and he gave it to the butcher and the butcher smashed them over the parole officer's head. I think he, his exact words was like, a, oh, the butcher took Mr. Ed and smashed it over, you know, smashed it open. And then later on, the Pope is watching Mr. Ed on TV in the Vatican. And it's like, that's such a, like, it's, it's, it's clever. And then it's like, Who's that for exactly? Like it's probably for somebody just to kind of say, that was my joke. I put that there and nobody noticed. So it's kind of as strange as a sound for a film that is so peculiar in places. It kind of rewards your attention in little moments like that. Because if you you'd miss those two things if you weren't looking for things like that. Yeah, and I will say that it almost is a little too clever for its own good because at the end of the day, like you need to sell this movie to a wide audience to be successful. You spent $65 million on this movie. And so when it only brings in like what, 15, 20 million back, it's like, okay, this is a financial failure, but why was that? And like you said, uh, who was the movie really made for? And if you look at it, like it's made for like, Bruce Willis having his creative input on this yeah. and it's made for the people that are in the movie to have fun with it. Cause like Richard E. Grant's obviously having a great time in this, like David Carradine's character or excuse me, not <laughs> David Carradine, David Caruso. Uh, his Kit Kat character is just like, Caruso, yeah. and it's so quiet too. Like the decision to just have this guy not talk, like literally he doesn't speak. Uh, he communicates through a collection of business cards <laughs> that he has like pre-printed with messages on them. And 
he just shows up all of a sudden in the background and he's dressed like Bruce Willis or he's dressed like Annie McDowell or, you know, he's dressed like a statue. And like, there's no explanation for why his character is doing this, because I think the first time we meet him, he's just wearing like a eccentric, colorful suit, but he's not uh, he's not dressed like an ambulance, you know. He yeah. <laughs> So as the movie goes on and he progressively begins to take on these things in his surroundings as like sort of a chameleon and not explaining that, not giving his character the ability to even explain it is such a bold decision that's going to be very, very off-putting for a lot of people. But to your point about rewarding your attention, I think this is a movie that will likely be better watching it multiple times. So for the people that really do like it and want to give it their attention and have fun with it and kind of like just put it on and get back into it again there's probably more stuff to take away from it each time you watch it and that's generally the case uh with films like you come back to something five years later you've sort of changed personally and so maybe the way you interact with a film is different than it was when you saw something as a kid or you know vice versa depending on how big the gap is between viewings but this is a movie that like the story is straightforward it's uh an art thief who is blackmailed into doing something that he doesn't want to do and he has to find a way out of it like very simple but all of the supporting structure around it is very intricate and very colorful. And even if I even if I were to say, like, pause on this for five years and come back to it, I don't think my interpretation of the story or the themes would change drastically. But the fine details of the little supporting stuff. Like if you were to go to say like, uh, or like old woodworking on like a, a desk from, you know, the, the golden age of craftsmanship, like you see the nice desk and it's like, okay, it's a nice functional desk. Right. But then it's like, Oh, there's like a switch here that opens a drawer. And there's this another switch underneath that drawer that opens another secret compartment. And just like the little fine detail of all that, uh, really adds up and the more you sit there and the more you sort of investigate what this thing is the more it opens itself up and you know I'm like I said earlier like I'm so glad that this was my first time watching it because as a kid I would probably just be like oh this was a Bruce Willis like action vehicle that I didn't really fully understand and so seeing this as an adult and like getting to kind of hone in on some of the stuff that's happening in the background really made it a much, much more enjoyable experience uh, than I was anticipating. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like there's so many little things that I, even I found myself going this time, but I, I never noticed how just weird that was before. Like there's a, uh, you know, there's, there's the part where he's going to stuff out the, um, the Da Vinci sketchbook and there's this little girl and she has this big teddy bear. <laughs> just smack, just hitting it off the steps and he's just looking at her and she sticks out her tongue and walks by and it's just a weird scene but then her mother comes in the shot and she says it's really subtle and you can just went here and she goes stop it you're embarrassing your country and she drags the child <laughs> off <laughs> it's, like, it's such a specifically worded joke or even like the security guards in the Vatican and they're like one of them takes out a flask and he just starts pouring spaghetti out of his flask onto a plate and <laughs> it's such a you know, it's such like like it's a it's a real airplane or a hot shots joke, but it's like, yeah, it kind of fits here. 
Yeah, I had to rewind that actually because I'm like, did this guy like just the security guard at the museum just has hot spaghetti in a thermos? It's like because <laughs> the joke is like this guy is so Italian that he keeps spaghetti in his thermos, right? And so to like see it play out, I'm like, again, this is just such a weird joke to be in a movie that wants to like sometimes be taken seriously, but most of the time it's having fun. And it is such, like you said, like an airplane joke or like that tone of humor. And I, I rewound it. I'm like, nope, that was indeed spaghetti in a thermos. <laughs> it's like, you know, we've seen security guards in so many other movies with a thermos and they pour themselves a cup of coffee and then uh, a motorcycle rides by really fast and they spill it on themselves or, you know, something explodes <laughs> and the, the coffee goes flying. So to take a, a joke or not even a joke, but to take a scene that has been in a lot of other films and to inject this way different kind of personality into it. And like, it's not really making fun of Italians, but it it's just having fun with the idea that like, hey, we're in Italy, like what would the security guard have in his thermos? You know, because it would probably be coffee or tea or whatever. And it's like, no, this guy's got spaghetti in here and they're just on their lunch break. It's it's a great joke. I'm glad that you brought it up because I I wrote it down for uh, myself as well. And I think that's kind of the area that I started to really dial into, like what this movie wants to do and how they're going to go about doing it. Like, probably like half of the pizza into it. Spaghetti removed. Mm-hmm. If a, if a slice of pizza came out of that thing, that would be hilarious, though. It would be... Oh, my like, God, I would probably, love this. You would have so much trouble, like, getting the pizza to fall out practically, though. So I wouldn't be surprised, though, if they tried it and they couldn't make it happen. And so they're like, okay, we're going to just go with spaghetti because we know it will come out and work on camera. Uh, I would love to talk to Bruce Willis and um, the other writers and Michael Lehman who directed it and be like, how did you arrive and settle on this particular joke? Um, it's just like the film doesn't always work, but it's never boring because there's always something just weird about to happen. So you think you think that she's a prayer to this cross, and then this voice comes in and talks back to her. <laughs> it's, like, it's just such a weird thing. Like and Bruce Willis even says it, he goes like, "That's it's weird." <laughs> it's so good. But again, that's and that goes back to another like production design element. It's like somebody had to go and make that cross that lit up, and presumably there was somebody underneath it pressing the button in time the, the lines of dialogue. You know? Yeah, it's such a such a weird way to communicate that particular thing but you're getting into this sort of like you're getting in like the underground of the vatican and uh you're getting into like a little bit of history of the area as well too but like very light history so for like the idea that this like whole underground tunnel system exists in the first place and then they're they just transport like mail to him constantly like he's santa claus and she, I think she even says, like, oh, he takes his mail very seriously. And, and you get to the point where, yeah, they kind of like he Bruce Willis, like leaves the screen and there's just like this cross and you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But the one thing that happens is something that you never assume would happen. And it starts lighting up and yeah. talking to her. And so it's just, again, another one of those things that is such a distinct choice to try to make for this character and 
to have it be like she's almost like a like a Charlie's Angels kind of where like, you know, who is it? Bosley's the one that you see, but the guy on the other side of the radio that you don't see Charlie, right? Yes. So that kind of yeah. same like intercom system where it's like she's just an agent of this other person. And we do eventually see him. So it's not as like weird and disembodied, but very, very yeah. strange. Um, in, in the, you see them in the in the confessional where she steps out and she's wearing her nun's gear. And he basically, like, he's like her her M to James Bond, basically. And he's like going in. And she, she, puts, she puts on a pair of shades and just walks out like the coolest nun in the world. <laughs> I love that she had fun with it, too. Because, you know, conventionally, she's there as uh, the love interest. But in nine, 99 times out of 100, the love interest, like, falls for the kind of, like, cliched actions of the hero. And that's sort of, like, what's going on, but also not what's going on at the same time. And her uh, her relationship to the church and her being a nun is, like, secretly standing in the way of how she feels. And Bruce isn't exactly uh, 100% on board with what's happening and so it even takes like a, a simple dynamic something that would be familiar for the audience and even takes that and twists it up so that it's it's not going to be something that you immediately recognize but i'm glad you mentioned uh james bond because as i was watching this i felt like austin powers was heavily influenced by this movie the tone of the humor uh some of some of the jokes directly, I think, were also done that way. And I mean, in I think our first meeting with uh, with the Mayflowers is the name of yeah, Sandra Bernhardt and uh, Richard yeah. Grant, the Mayflowers. The first meeting when you walk in there, they have their little table set up, and you've got all these people from across the world. And I mean, some of them are <laughs> you know very culturally inappropriate, but at the same time, it's like, here's this guy, here's this guy, here's this guy. So it's very much Austin Powers. And it's like this big meeting room. It's the opposite where they've got like these big floor to ceiling windows, but it's all kind of like stone as well. Uh, even Sandra Bernhardt's character, who's like sort of very loud and obnoxious and forward is very much sort of an influence for that same character dynamic in uh, Austin Powers as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, like the the yeah the big elaborate. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the the characters that's around him was like this child, like uh, yep. he's a little child wearing turban, and just the, the, the kind of over the top nature of the way Richard De Grant speaks about what they're going to do, and it's like uh, what he said: pride, ambition. They're going to be uh, trinkets on my mantelpiece, and all this kind of stuff. And they're talking about flooding the world's market with gold, and all this kind of. And it's very much like, yeah, definitely. Uh, Austin Powers lifted a lot from it, like the the whole supervillain vibe from Richard Grant was just through the roof. Uh, it's as if, yeah, he just said he looked at the biggest James Bond villain and said, "I'm going to do that, but multiply it by ten. Yeah, more style, more color, more fun." Yeah, um, Sandra Bernhardt. Initially, when I saw, I remember seeing it back in the day, and I wasn't a fan of her character. But now I kind of get it, if that makes sense. Um, like she's supposed to be abrasive and loud, and just really obnoxious American. No offense to you or your fellow countrymen, but that's <laughs> you know. I, 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 yeah, I suppose it's meant to be. Maybe it's a comment. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it's supposed to be a commentary on like 
you know, the lack of appreciation for fine art or something like that. But like, they're going by and the, the statues, if it's just like not worth anything to the world. Because I think he offers like a hundred million dollars and then she walks in and again, very Dr. Evil actually, when you think about it. And she comes in and she goes, one hundred million and one. And you know, there's no, they don't want to place any value on anything. Again, but like you say, in, in a normal film, you'd be like, oh, such a cliche. But in this one, it's like, they, they really embrace that cliche. And it's like, yeah, we know. That's why we're going so big with it. Yeah, it's like performative, uh, excuse me, performative opulence on their part. And in that scene that you're talking about, it is they're bidding around, I think, like 20, 25 million. And then he just comes in like arms in the air. He's not even in the auction room. He walks in <laughs> from outside and just goes 100 million and like just proclaims a big number. That's 80 million. It's five times as much as anybody's bidding at the time. So he knows nobody's going to compete with him. And then his uh, wife, I don't know if she's his wife, but they're both Mayflower. Yeah. So I assume. OK, she comes in and then again, just 100 million dollars and one. So. Like to to come and kind of upstage him, but really like they're together. So it really isn't her bidding it like she's going to get it and he's not. And you're talking about a hundred million dollars. So the one dollar doesn't make a difference, but he still kind of bows down and is like, oh, well, I guess that's too rich for me kind of thing. So it's all this yeah. performative wealth for them. And like you said, it's it's obnoxious in the way that they uh, just don't value anything. Like they're these huge yeah. caricatures of colorful, rich supervillains. And like their superpower is being obnoxious, <laughs> uh, but they're both very good at that. And sort of the way that she sort of first engages with Bruce Willis when he's handcuffed, uh, that moment is just she dives like right into it and it is very much like gross in a way, I guess. Like, I, I don't know if I have a better word for that, but she is just kind of a gross character. And <laughs> I love that she's not afraid to, to embrace that part of it. Like she wants to be that. And there, I think it's later in that same scene where they're basically trying to strong arm in into doing this particular robbery. And he doesn't want to, he just wants to go home, you know, et cetera. And she, yeah, she says, he says something like, I'm like, just throw me in jail at this point. I don't even care. And she's like, jail. And like, she just like, we're going to have our guys come and just blow your fucking brains out. Like, the way that she goes through the mechanics of that particular scene, it's it's like threatening, but it's also not threatening at the same time. It just comes across so weird and again, just performative. And I think she did a really wonderful job with it. And so did Grant. I was just going to say his he has this great monologue for again. I think that it's the same scene with it's affecting him. And he's, he's this great line with us. I'm going to torture you so badly you're going to think it's a career. And it's like, <laughs> I kind of I kind of don't believe him when he says it. And then you're kind of like, well, you, you don't know what lurks just beneath the surface of this character because you've only ever seen him, like, be really big and arrogant and abrasive. And like you said, when he bursts into the, uh, when he bursts into the auction, he's like, hands up in the air as if he's after scoring a goal in the World Cup final. Like, you know, it's a big, it's like a big showy kind of look at me kind of a thing. But uh, yeah, no, he's terrific. And 
he is. Uh, and I love that line because you like you have to think about that joke a little bit. He's not like I'm just going to like <laughs> I'm going to peel your skin off or like it's it's vague in a way that makes you actually think of what that joke encompasses. But the movie is moving too fast to give that joke room to breathe. So that's one of those things where if you're watching it a second time or if like you're just like you can take that and sort of like you have to pause with it because like the dialogue is still unfolding in the room. But to think of like, what does he mean by he's going to make you think it's a career? Like, is he going to be in there with you just torturing you for the next 30 years? <laughs> so it's it's smart, but I like that the movie doesn't really give you too much time to dwell on it because a conventional yeah. villain is, you know, they're going to give you kind of the conventional threats of like, I'm going to beat you so bad that, you know, you're going to wish that you were never born or, you know, I'm going to do this or that. Like, I'm going to go after your family, like that kind of stuff. But either this mm -hmm. character doesn't really like torture people and doesn't know what to say in that moment, or he really does torture people to that extent where he just does it every day for 30 years and really enjoys the hell out of it. And it's, it's layered in a, a in a way that is complex, but also not too much. Like it's just it was a very smart joke that I liked in that scene. And I love that the movie just is like, hey, don't pay too much attention to it. It's smart, but we're going to keep going. So like catch up to us. <laughs> yeah, it's one that you kind of you think about a few hours later and go, oh, it's, that it's like, you know, th there's a line in the sound that it kicked around my head for years after I'd seen it, but I had forgotten where I had heard it um, until I watched the film about three or four years ago. And I was like, that's where that's from. And it was when Danny Aiello was saying, uh, you know, I didn't smoke. I didn't smoke to this on my first no smoking sign. And then he stops and goes, keep off the grass, let's play soccer. <laughs> that line is just so good. Yeah, and he even delivers that line with uh, a kind of like quiet confidence where it's like, it's not that the 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 joke isn't funny, but it's not uh, it's not funny in the same way that some of the other jokes are. So it is this like, you know, middle finger to authority and like you're not going to tell me what to do and sort of the knee jerk reaction to if there's a sign that says, like, don't cross this line, I'm going to cross that line. And that's like his personality type. And I love that he looked at that and just embodied it with so much confidence because it is structured differently than a lot of the other humor in the film. And his character may be the only one that could really pull that off because like, like you said earlier, like he just, he comes in and he's so like confident and just so breezy with the performance, like of all the people that you could believe were their actual character, he's probably the best at it. How you feel about doing some trivia? Oh, keep me all of us. Time for trivia. When you get done trivia with the last couple of episodes you've done, and I was on IMDb, I was like, no, nothing to get trivia. I'm not going to spoil it for myself. There's a lot of trivia. There is. Uh, and you, you've done a little bit. So it's like I tried to format uh, the questions a little bit in a way where I'm like, okay, like maybe this will work. Maybe not. We'll see how it goes. I'm still, I'm still, uh, you know, fine tuning the trivia stuff, but 
let's go. Um, so number one, I had sort of mentioned Austin Powers, right? And that's a movie that's set with its 60s presence as well and those influences. Um, the tone, the the audio tone that's on Hudson Hawk's handcuffs when the Mayflowers handcuff him in the meeting room. That, I believe, is the ringtone of the phone in uh, Austin Powers' car when Basil calls him, the the FaceTime call. But oh that audio tone was... Uh, it was taken from two other films in the 60s. Do you know what... You can name one of the two films, but uh, either one of those. Oh, man. I don't know. It was, like, it's hard, it's hard to, like... Two thousand one space. I don't see. Um, no, not two thousand one. No, no. the 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 tone comes from the films "Our Man Flint" and "In Like Flint," and it's used as the telephone ringtone. Uh, so yeah, I, like as soon as I heard it, I was like, I know this from somewhere. And interestingly, in the trivia, it has these two movies listed. So now I feel like I need to go watch Austin Powers to kind of give it like a full circle experience and see if I was just imagining that or if it really is the FaceTime phone call sound. But I'm more confident that it is now than I was before, at least. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say something about that. Thing, but... If it's another bit of trivia, I don't want to step in the way. We'll see. Okay, so uh, question number two. You kind of talked about this earlier, so I'm pretty confident you're going to get this one. I said this, uh, as you said, was written by Stephen E. D'Souza, who also wrote the screenplay for The Running Man, which we did an episode on just not too long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was yes, the only writing credit for Bruce Willis, but it was the only writing credit for who else? Uh, what's the guy that Bruce Willis wrote with Robert Kraft I mean, Robert famous? Kraft yes I don't believe that's the same guy that owns the New England Patriots but it is indeed Robert Kraft who got the other story credit for this film and question number three Richard E. Grant turned down a role in which movie to play this character No, a really obvious answer would be probably the sheriff planning on Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. But Ding, correct. That. Well done. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was indeed Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. And like, okay, so Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, like movie-wise, like certainly was more well received than this, but there's no way Richard E. Grant's gonna have the same kind of fun in that movie that he got to have in this one. So I'm ultimately glad that he made this decision. Uh, I would love to hear his thoughts, though, on making that decision at the time, because you've seen like a lot more of these kind of like actors on actors conversations and sort of like what has been turned down and things like that over time. Mm. And, you know, I was watching uh, sort of a I think it was a Colbert interview with Keanu Reeves where he was talking about what Colbert asked him if there was a character that he's played that he would like to reprise the role. And. Keanu said yes, and Colbert was surprised that that wasn't enough to get the movie made, but he was talking about uh, playing Constantine again, and I think I heard that they're actually working on that again now that John Wick has been so successful, 
Uh, so I'm happy to hear that because I love Constantine and I would like to see, I would have liked to see a sequel 15 years ago whenever it came out. I don't remember. Yeah. But it's just when you say that Robin Hood is Prince of Thieves, I think like Rickman's performance isn't a million miles away from which he grants either. I think it's, it's a little bit more grounded, but he still is, is prone to those like fits of like overacting and, Tear his heart out with a spoon and all that kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's not like yeah, there's 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 they share a little bit of DNA. I think I like that. I mean, that makes sense why Grant was uh, considered for the role in the first place. Um, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get into the Metascore stuff later, and we'll read those critics reviews, but we're not quite going there yet because there's some other stuff that I wanted to talk about first, and. Mm-hmm. One of those, we we talked about some of these sort of supporting characters that are in the film that are part of like the, you know, the equivalent of like the Suicide Squad. And so one of these guys is named Butterfinger, and he kind of played like yes. this, this meathead sort of character in a lot of movies. You know, he was uh, Zangief in Street Fighter. He was the dude who was juicing to the gills in the program back in 93. So he yeah. was always sort of like a muscle headed character, but also almost always partially in a comedic role as well. So interesting to see him like kind of fully in a comedic role. And even though he's the muscle here, he never like is successfully the muscle, really. I think he picks up Bruce Willis and sits him down on the gurney the one time. But other than that, like he's never actually good at being the enforcer for this group. No, he's absolutely useless. And he, even though even when they, they introduce him, and he's, he's stepping out of like thinking like a portable toilet, and uh, one of them goes, "This is butter. This is butterfingers." And Bruce Willis goes, "Yeah, no shit." Because he's just so clumsy. Uh, he goes through most of the film without one of his teeth, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Um, Bruce Willis kicked the shit out of Monroe and just bursts his head off a telephone box at one stage. And then he said something to him. He goes to hand him something. And then Bruce Willis like, does a, a boo-hoo from Yogi Bear impression mm. um, back at him, which I think is very strange. Um, but he uh, does a great, there's a couple of great lines in that happened kind of as a result of him and by him. There's the part with the brother stalking, staking out Bruce Willis, and uh, they, they like give him this his book, the preacher book, and he starts reading it out loud, and then one just goes, Do yourself, you know? <laughs> and it's just such, like I said, it's, it's the thing. And then there's, there's a great line near the end where himself and Coburn are kind of running around with stuff exploding. And, Coburn is like going, maybe we'll go this way. And then an explosion. He goes, no, maybe we'll go this way. And he goes to walk through a door and uh, Coburn says, what if you go ahead there and do something? We can't remember what he tells him to do. And Butterfinger says, yeah, put me in, coach. Where did that come from? Yeah, it's like, it's, it's so it's good. a flashback and to one of his other roles or something. Yeah, it's so good. But I don't know, when you were reading off his roles, he he was actually in a tiniest part in uh, Batman Returns. He plays Christopher Walken's son. Yes. Um, and he has, I think he has like one line of dialogue in the whole film. And he does like a pitch perfect Christopher Walken impression. Because I think all he has to do is say something like, no, dad. And then that's all he says in it. And uh, I believe his name was Chet. 
in Batman Returns. So when I saw him, this I was like, oh, it's Chet. But like a tiny part, but tiny but memorable part. But uh, yeah, like I enjoyed the that kind of rogues gallery. Um, but him and kind of Crusoe with the two standouts. I was watching this film going, David Crusoe did like CSI Manny for so many years, but he could also do this if he had chosen to do this. So I think we I think we missed out on some on some prime David Crusoe. I think so too. And it's like, look, not to belittle CSI Miami or whatever that show was that he's doing, like that steady work, you know, that show's been on TV for a long time and he's kind of, you know, found his way into being that character. But to get a role like this where he doesn't talk and it's all just like his physical acting. And like you said, I think we missed out on his ability to be a good comedic actor and i mean my favorite scene with him in the movie is where all of a sudden he's just in costume as hudson hawk standing behind bruce willis don't know where he came from but he's dressed just like him and he's sort of trying to mimic all the things that bruce willis is doing with his physical body language and his mannerisms and i don't have any idea why i think that's the first time in the movie where we see that happen and it just all of a sudden he's behind him and he wasn't I don't think we saw him anywhere else around in that scene, even though all of the other of the members of that Rose Gallery are kind of there. The scene cuts, it's like a back and forth with, with James Coburn and Bruce Willis and the, whole, the camera is on James Coburn while he's talking. And then it cuts back and you see him stepping out of the phone booth that Bruce Willis was in, like mm. two minutes later. It's like, how did he, get, did he come along <laughs> and go into the phone booth and then come out again? But even like... Even like his hair is dyed for that scene. He dyed his hair black for that scene just so he look. And he has a little trickle of blood coming out the side of his mouth from where uh, Hudson Hawk got punched a few seconds before. He's really like committing to this part. And then he's dressed up, like you said, as, as, as Andy McDowell later in the movie. It's like, what is this even supposed to be? Like, it's, you know, it, it, there was a part of me that was kind of thinking, is it going to be like, is there going to be a fake out later in the movie where you think, do you remember when, uh, when you think Danny Aiello's character is is gone, as another character, oh no, that was Kid Cat. They swap bodies, and he put on a fat suit. Like that, it's like no, he just kind of gets shot with a crossbow, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. <laughs> and then he gives Danny McDowell the little card and it says, uh, "I always liked you." <laughs> it was like that's so bizarre. Like in all the cards that I've for, and it's just I was thinking about this earlier, just while we're kind of talking about what happens in the movie. But me and you told me about what happens in the movie doesn't actually do it justice for what you see on screen or what you, when you hear the lines being delivered because what's describing it is absolutely not a fair reflection of how things are delivered and things are, are shown on screen there's more to it than just what we're talking about this oh absolutely and i think the movie is so strange that like even though you you and i have seen it so we're enjoying looking back on those scenes but for someone who hasn't seen it sort of to what I pointed to earlier, where it's like, you know that this is the story that you've seen before. Like, guy gets out of prison, gets blackmailed into doing this thing, needs to find a way out of it. Like, the story beats are all there, so it's not really, like, any spoiling to it. It's Bruce Willis at the height of his fame after Die Hard. Like, he's the hero. We we know what those stories are like. So it is a lot of the connective tissue that really makes this movie stand out and i'm going to champion for this very hard 
going forward because I think people should see this and I think its reputation at this point uh, is definitely undeserved as being a bad movie. I understand it being in the realm of a movie that flopped, but this is a movie that I think was just ahead of its time. Like this style of humor where it's sort of overly aware of its own existence, you know, what they call meta these days. It's much more at home uh, stylistically now than it would have been at in 1992 so i think there's probably a good audience for this now although i don't know who's actually seen it and who's not but i know ben who's in the film club i think he said he loves this movie as well so glad to see that somebody else out there has at least given us a stamp of approval before we moved forward with this yeah absolutely and actually if this film had came out after death becomes i think Bruce Willis' performance in a minute because he plays, he, that's a weird comedy, but he's not the main character in that film, so that kind of, he doesn't have the pressure of performing as the main character in it, if that makes sense. Um, and again, it's strange, I'd like to go back to your trivia section. Isabella Rossellini was meant to play Andy Bell's character, but she had to drop out because of scheduling issues. And when you were talking about Arman Flint, of course, there's the James Holborn connection because James Holborn mm-hmm. is in Arman Flint. Um, and I just have one more note here about Robert Kraft. Um, Robert Kraft and Bruce Willis came up with the character through a song they had written, like Ed said, kind of way back at the start. And Robert Kraft, I believe, got a co-writing credit for the music as well. And I don't know if you spotted, like, it's pretty obvious to me as somebody who watched Die Hard and Lead the Weapon a lot, which music belonged to Michael Kamen in this movie, and which movie music belonged to Robert Kraft. Because that Michael Kamen, like, the, dun, 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 that's his kind of thing. And then there's this, this, this kind of jazzy, bluesy score that comes along, and I'm like, yeah, I can tell who did which sections of music. I don't think this was a collaborative effort. It was like, <laughs> yeah, as I sort of sat with that score, and I'm like, okay, so it's like got like a little detective noir kind of vibe going on it's sort of embodying like the 40s and 50s sort of bluesy jazz and i really like that music too and it was one of the things that surprised me i think most early on was that hey i'd love this jazzy score and it's like right as he's i think getting released from prison too is when that music first (laughs) kicks in so it is like his character introduction and we're getting it uh, against the backdrop of this very, you know, bland setting that's very confined. So it's a weird juxtaposition of tones, but it is letting you know that this guy who's getting out of jail, like his energy is here and the world that he operates in, the energy's down here. So I like that those two things sort of uh, clash with each other as well. Um, and when you're talking about uh, Death Becomes Her, that was in, well, what year was that? That was 92, so same year. Uh, well, at least it was made in 92, so it probably came out the year after that. But, you know, you go on from this, and then uh, he has, like, a short segment in Four Rooms, which is, like, a very dark comedy. Uh, but he also sort of does The Fifth Element, and although he's the action lead and the star of that film, 
that's also like he's doing a lot of comedic work in that film too and you know sadly very sadly for me fifth element is a movie that probably qualifies for this show because it's i mean it's got great user ratings because of course people love it because it's good but critics did not <laughs> like it at all and i think with death becomes her it's similar like it's well reviewed by people but critic scores were very very poor for it and you know death becomes her is uh a lot darker tonally but bruce willis is sort of like scatterbrained character as this doctor but also beholden to these two women that he has made immortal with this serum and him <coughs> grappling with that gives him a very different style of humor to work with you know like because as we said with Hudson Hawk, the humor is not too far removed from sort of what we see with John McClane. Like he's still in the same sort of realm. But if John McClane operated in a world that was more PG and more just, you know, flippant about what's happening uh, rather than he's yeah. constantly having to fight terrorists and, you know, walk on broken glass. So. I, I see that death becomes her. It's like, even he looks differently. They gave him the mustache and they kind of like turned him into this different person. But I think you're right that if, if this, if death becomes her and fifth element had come out before Hudson Hawk, Hudson Hawk, I think would have been successful because now you're like, you're seeing that he's taking on these types of other roles. And especially with fifth element, with him being able to, to have comedy and to, give some of that comedy to this film overall and still have it be a successful action film uh, that is very colorful, that has very eccentric characters. I think there's a, a lot of connective tissue between those two. Yeah, I think Hudson Hawk is due for a, a re-evaluation. And I don't, I'm not a big fan of re-evaluations, especially when newer films come out. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's as weird as it sounds. You, you kind of wonder, did the, the kicking that he got for Hudson Hawk and where the vanities made him kind of right like take smaller roles, made him more comfortable to take stuff like a six sense later in his career. Maybe that's overanalyzing it, but it's kind of a lot of myths and buts. No, I mean, I think I think it's important. And like you said, in terms of reevaluating this movie, it's been 30 years. So this isn't something where it's like, oh, this movie came out five years ago and was ill received. And like, we really need to rally behind this movie. But in watching it and considering sort of you know his the decline in his health and maybe looking at his career with um more intent and sort of you know lamenting the loss of him as one of these iconic stars from the late 80s and 90s and you see that i think also in the 90s there was sort of a maybe like a little bit of a pushback against the tone of films that were successful during the eighties, because there's a point where um, 1986, the number one movie at the box office is uh, I think Top Gun was 87, 86 was Beverly Hills Cop or vice versa. Beverly Hills Cop two, I think. So you've got like an axle yeah. having fun, but I think even with something like Beverly Hills Cop, the overall tone of the film is slightly more serious than Hudson Hawk. It's like, it's a vehicle for Eddie Murphy to be funny, but it's not necessarily a vehicle for everybody in the movie to be funny. And that's a clear distinction. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, it's, 
if Bruce Willis had a if it, if Bruce Willis was the only zany one and everyone else was playing straight, or if Bruce Willis was the straight man and everyone else was playing it zany, then easier in people's sort of perceptions of what this movie is. But like even a like Frank Stallone is you know has a small part in it. Mm-hmm. Then the the other the other Mario brother brother goes yeah even I could understand that was there. I goes shut up you know so you know it's yeah like everybody is zany in this film like there's no normal person. You know, and it's, it's like you say, it's one of those ones that you think about after the fact. It's like, what does that even mean? And what's the backstory to that line? You know what I mean? The Pope warned me never to trust the CIA. Yeah, very, very this specific. Way. And I like that. Uh, it gives the movie character. And, you know, there's there's some other lines like that as well. And I think in that same scene where Ayala is talking with the Mario brothers and I mean, that's leaving aside the whole like weird Nintendo thing that's going on in this movie with. Yeah, he's been in jail. He doesn't know what Nintendo is. But then they joke about, okay, let's play Nintendo together, like at the end of the movie. And then these two Italians who are like the third, what they say, the third biggest crime family in the city. They're Mario Brothers. So there's like very clearly intentioned uh, references to Nintendo and I guess the influence maybe that it had on, you know, the creatives here, or maybe it was something that they were playing a lot of while they were on set, like, yeah. you know, waiting for things to get set up with these big set pieces. So I'd be curious to hear some of the backstory there, but in that same restaurant scene where he, uh, he bonks the, the dumb Mario brother over the head with the champagne bottle. Like, but I think it's Hudson that says to him, like, I think he's it's weird. He says, like, normally I would say kiss my ass, but for you, I'll say slurp my butt. (laughs) Again, that's such a weird intention in that, like, because you could just be like, okay, kiss my ass or, you know, whatever. But like the the fact that he structures the whole thing out like this is because I'm going to say this, it warrants an explanation. (laughs) And this is where the joke is going to land was very, very strange. But it also kind of like tones it down a little bit where it's like kiss my ass is maybe one of those things where it's like if you say ass too much in a movie like your your uh mpaa rating is climbing towards going towards an r but if you say something that like slurp my butt which is much more graphic when you think about it it'll it'll land in a realm where it's like you could put this in a pg movie but you know he's also just got out of jail too so like when i'm thinking about it too much i'm just like i don't really know that i want to know no, yeah. where that saying came from yeah is that something that he heard in prison yeah i think it's i think it's i think it's the word slurp it's really like it's <laughs> real it's a real mouthful of word but yeah like and even like you said that the pg-13 there's parts in this i don't know if you've spotted or like it's nearly adr out bad language like there's part of the start where, where uh, the parole officer should get a do another job, and he grabs the keys. He, you know, he, you see the man's pocket that has the keys, and he, he clearly says something like, "You know, go fuck yourself" or something like that. But then the, the dialogue is like, "Do it yourself," and it's like, "But the film is rated R anyway, so why are you covering over the swear words?" Because like, in 15 minutes' time, some guys want to have his throat slashed. You know? so yeah, it's, it's impossible. No. Well, what kind of went wrong? Not went wrong. Sorry, because there's nothing wrong with this one. It's impossible to know what <laughs> led to certain certain decisions being made. Yeah, and 
you know, my best guess would be that like you watch it back and with a guy like Hudson saying, go fuck yourself, maybe it doesn't fit his character quite as much as him being like, hey, I got the better of you, but I'm also not the kind of person to be like uh, aggressively cursing at you in that moment. So it sort of just like tones down his character a little bit to where he's not really like, I don't think he says things like that too much throughout the rest of the movie either. Uh, he'll, he'll swear he does, he and does. he doesn't like hold back with that, but he's not uh, directing it at other people very often, which sort of, you know, sets him apart uh, from maybe like a darker character or or a more adult character that we see in Die Hard. But like you said, it's rated R. So, I mean, you might as well go for it because there's the scene where he's hanging out the back of the ambulance and like after the cigarette, or maybe before he's like, oh, how's my driving? 1-800-I'm-gonna-fucking-die. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like he he's he's not unwilling to use that word. And I think in that moment, it's like he's almost passively using the F word as just the amplifier for what he's saying. Whereas in that other moment, it seems like maybe more mean spirited to tell this guy, like, go fuck yourself. So that's that's my best guess. Yeah, yeah the only other thing I could think was like, he doesn't want to give this guy to say that, oh, he used bad language at this parole officer back in jail. So, that kind of way. so maybe it's something like that. But again, I think we're, there's a part of me that thinks we're going more in depth into this than what the people that actually made the film may have at some stages. Oh yeah, quite possibly. But I think that those filmmakers would be glad that we're doing it because I think they put a lot of work into this movie that kind of just got overlooked and a case of, Hey, this got, you know, bombed by critics and it really like, I think because of the cost of the budget, like if this movie doesn't cost $65 million, it's not going to get dunked on in the way that it did. The fact that it was like positioned to be a successful action vehicle and maybe even spawn sequels down the road, I think is really the biggest handicap in terms of its expectations. Because if you go in thinking, hey, even more fun version of Die Hard, right? That's not what you walk out of this movie with. So and then there's, you know, there's critics that like to dunk on it for other reasons. And we're about to get to that. But the one other line of dialogue that I wanted to talk about from uh, Butterfinger before we get into it is they're, they're in the stakeout, they're in the car, and he's like way too big for the backseat of the small Italian car. And so like visually, you already know, like this is just not meant to be, but I love the decision to do that. And I forgot what it was what the context was but he says do you want me to rape him and i was like what i was like hold on did i just hear that correctly and of course i did because i had the subtitles on but i was very struck by that line because i don't know how his character arrives at that even within the context of what they've created for us like he's not the muscle so is he just like the group rapist he just blurts it out and that's what that, i think that's the same where they say to him you know, read your book to yourself. Yes. But yeah, that that's it is again, I know we've used the word choice in lots when we're talking about because like that was quite a huge choice. Um, and I just like you talk, I know the tone of the film is all over the place, but that's one thing where it's like, no, even that like no matter how wild the tone of the film is overall, that's just apropos of nothing. 
Yeah, it's almost like they were like, hey, just ad lib this scene. And then they filmed it like 30 times with 30 different ways. And they're like, all the other ones suck. So we got to use this one. And it, yeah, it's the one bit of dialogue that feels like it's not really at home in the rest of the movie because it's so yeah. weird and intense. It's like, I mean, yeah, like rape jokes are not really <laughs> easy to wield at any point. So to do it flippantly, especially and like, just casually like oh do you want me to go up there and rape him like that's such a weird decision and like i don't think that's the one thing that turned everybody off but it it is definitely out of place with the rest of the film uh mm. but we've arrived at that point where we go to critics corner and now we really get to hear all of the horrible horrible things that were said about this movie and with a meta score of 17 there's a lot of horrible things so we always start at the bottom and oh, we got two zeros to start us off. So we get Entertainment Weekly or LA Times, and I'll let you choose which. Pick your poison. The uh, Entertainment Weekly. Yeah, that sounds right. It's a trade magazine, right? Okay, so Entertainment mm -hmm. Weekly. This is Owen Gleiberman. Says this may be the only would-be blockbuster that's a sprawling, dissociated mess on purpose. It's a perverse landmark, the first postmodern Hollywood disaster. It's interesting because he points to a lot of the things that actually I think we like about this and yeah. still almost criticizes it for being uh, like when he says Hollywood disaster, like to me that specifically resonates with its financial failure because otherwise like you don't bring that into it. You could just call it a disaster. But the fact that he says it's a would be blockbuster and then calls it a disaster is again, like critical of it, not making money, not critical of it as a piece of, you know, film. Hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's, but then you kind of wonder like, how do they know that it's a disaster? You know, 67 million in 1991 is a lot of money. You know, oh, yeah. when you consider this, I think Terminator 2 was like 1995, maybe. So it's not too far with that for like Bruce Willis, Bruce Brothers heist action slapstick comedy. Yeah, it does have a great cast, though. So hopefully that money went into the cast. Obviously, a lot of it went into some of the set piecing as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and they did a lot of things practically. So, I mean, I just I hope that money was well spread and not just here. Bruce, you get 40 and we're going to make the rest of the movie for 25. And yeah, uh, I don't think that's the case, but. I want to well, I want to pause for a second because I know on Twitter, you know, you had posted something the other day about the way sort of like the performative industry trades have gotten into this. The flash is trending to make less money than it's supposed to. Like, what do you mean? It's supposed to either like it's, it's this weird thing of like, when you asked, how do they know beforehand? So I'm curious if it's like, was this always something that the industry trades were very aware of, but because we were not, plugged in and seeing it posted on social media that you know we just were not accustomed to and so even i think it's only the last like couple of years as like every film that comes out during the summer is meant to hit a certain benchmark in order to be successful and it's like oh the flash only made 70 million dollars in its opening weekend it's such an abject failure it's like what like that doesn't add up this movie just made 70 million dollars like sure it's expensive but this movie will make its money back over time and you shouldn't have to make it all back in your opening weekend. So I just 
I feel that that similar kind of logic is applied to the criticism of Hudson Hawk here. Successful movies, by virtue of uh, Hollywood accounting, you know, apparently don't make any money. So <laughs> I don't think it's 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 like it's like Netflix releasing their statistics uh, for oh X amount of households watch this film or this film has been viewed X amount of times. Like, yeah, but you're not showing us that. And how are you measuring that? Is it like they watch the whole film start to finish? Did they watch the first five minutes? Um, and it's no different with the, the tracking of the box office. Like, you were either going to see it or you weren't going to see it, regardless of how much money it took. Yeah, and it's a lot of the accounts that are also like attached to film properties and i don't want to call any of them out by name but they're basically like film news websites right and then they all just spread around the same thing it's like i see it 10 times a day from all these different sources everybody retweeting it and it's the same thing like so it's just one story that hey realistically what it is is flash uh pre-sale tickets are not where the studio would like them to be and then, oh, it's tracking to not make enough money. It's going to be a financial disaster. It's like, those are not the same things. And the bar has just been set so ridiculously high that if a summer blockbuster that's a studio superhero movie does not crash the ticket service the day that the tickets release, it's like basically considered a failure at that point. And that's just, it's kind of sad, but it's interesting to see that this is not a, a new phenomenon. This is something that has been going on with big budget Hollywood movies uh, that, you know, have big stars in them and good cast for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all this year again. So we're going to get back to it. Washington Post gave it a 10 out of 100. And there's no name attributed, but it says merely airheaded where it should be lighthearted. Hudson Hawk offers a klutzy, charmless hero and wallows dully in limp slapstick and lowest common denominator crudeness and i i don't understand that like there's not I, there's not like really dick jokes going on or anything there's there's not much of that kind of simple kind of uh what would they call it like knuckle dragging humor uh no. it's not that and like we talked about so many of those jokes are very well structured beyond how it services the screenplay and the story. So I I don't think that is uh, an accurate representation at all. And then we get into, let's see, we get into the twenties. So I'll let you pick Chicago Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle variety or the Austin Chronicle. Uh, we'll go there. San Francisco Chronicle. San Francisco Chronicle. Mick LaSalle. Is this, just... this, this is, this is, this is only actually <laughs> uh, it says just awful there is probably not one interrupted 60 second stretch in which a line of dialogue doesn't clunk an action doesn't ring false or an irritating plot turn doesn't present itself and so this is a guy i think who took this movie way too seriously he went into it thinking like this is die hard three at the time i think it would have been uh and mm -hmm. walked away being like what is this alternate universe where all of this stuff is happening and it almost is like that, where the universe that this movie takes place is not the same universe, the same reality where a Die Hard takes place, where Die Hard is, you know, it's action heavy and everything, but it's trying to operate within the confines of reality. And as we've seen in this movie, like David Caruso's character is maybe a shapeshifter or he's just got 
really good costume stuff with him at all times and happens to be very quick on the draw when it comes to, oh, she has a red dress. I have a red dress, too. So you can't expect this movie to operate in the same way that other Bruce Willis movies do. So I think that's just an oversight here by Mr. LaSalle. Yes, like you said, I think it's just not taking it at face value and just taking it far too seriously. Yeah. And I'm just finding it funny that like none of them seem to mention like I like what I say, like there seems to be a lot of like kind of laying it at the feet of Bruce Willis. Uh, True. And we're getting at least we're getting to the more positive scores as we climb the ladder. So I'm gonna jump over that was a twenty-five out of a hundred. So we're gonna jump over the 38, which was from USA Today, and we're going to go to TV Guide magazine that gave it a 40. And they say this one may be just excessive enough to develop a cult following. See? They knew it. It also go. it also provided quite popular with German audiences for reasons we've been unable to fathom to think that the German audience would be the ones that really like had this humor click for them uh, is surprising. But also, I think it's great. And I love that. This person was able to understand that, like, look, I don't get this, but somebody's going to get it. And then it's going to develop a cult audience after this. Uh, so props to TV Guide magazine still only gave it a 40, but it takes us to the Chicago Reader, the highest score of the group at a 50 out of 100. So that's a five out of 10. And, you know, the the uh, total IMDb score is a 5.7. So it's not that far off from the people who have reviewed it collectively. It says it doesn't have the polish or the momentum of an Indiana Jones adventure, which is, you know, fairly accurate. And it isn't too engaging on the plot level, but at least the filmmakers keep it moving with lots of screwball stunts. So I think Mr. Rosenbaum here understands that this is not the Hollywood production that Indiana Jones is, and it's not meant to be. And he, too, I think, looks at the simplicity of the plot of the, you know, the one, two, three convict leverage resolution and doesn't dig into that too much. And he knows that the filmmakers are having fun making this movie. So that's a probably is I mean, that is the nicest review we're going to get here. But I'm really glad that, you know, this movie has 58000 reviews, so it's not to the point where it's as high as some of the ones that I've seen on IMDb that were killed by critics, but then, you know, have half a million reviews that have done a really good job of uh, boosting the score up. But I really like that the critics seem to have completely misunderstood the tone of the movie. And I think it's just, it was ahead of its time. Like, it's self-awareness and it's sort of slapstick nature. And the fact that it wasn't openly a spoof movie like Airplane or like Naked Gun, like it wasn't it didn't put its like hat in that ring, so to speak. It didn't want to associate with that because of probably the negative connotation that comes along with being one of those movies. It's like those movies serve a particular purpose. And even though they're enjoyable and they're funny and they do all these things, they're certainly outside the realm of conventional Hollywood blockbuster films. And so it, it was a brave move to sort of like try to make this movie and have it be successful. And I mean, I really appreciate what it does. And I really hope that the people that are going to listen to this who maybe haven't seen it will give it a chance and hopefully we can rally the Hudson Hawk army and 
get this one climbing up the charts, but you know, five, seven out of 10 is really not that bad. Uh, it looks like it has its highest percentage of votes is actually sixes. So that would make sense, but 21%, six, 16%, five, 18%, seven. So that's pretty good. Sixes and sevens are the dominant two scores. So, you know, when you look at it that way, that's not bad at all. No, you'll take that. Uh, and I think it is showing that already because it stands out. You know, it's the type of film that people watch now and go, oh my God, why don't they make films like this anymore? You know, it's like, well, because yeah. nobody wanted to see that. Nobody meant to see it at the time, which probably, you know, what people appreciate now. No, I agree 100%. And I would much rather have the filmmaker that I'm paying attention to or, you know, I, I would rather have the movie that I'm watching take some chances and be itself rather than, you know, trying to be something else, trying to fit a particular bill because you need to please the producers and make X amount of money. And I think, you know, I'm not here to necessarily be critical of the MCU or anything, but I think what we saw with the MCU and I watch all the movies. And so what we saw was that after, after the point of the first guardians of the galaxy, there was almost an adherence to like, we have to tell jokes in this way because this movie was successful. And I think it really hindered a lot of the movies that came after guardians. Cause those aren't being written by James Gunn. And it just, it didn't let guardians be its own thing. And it sort of had to hang on to this. Well, Oh, well people want humor in their comic book stories and they want this kind of humor. So everything was sort of trying to reach that bar rather than being its own thing. But then by the time we've come full circle and we see guardians three, it detached itself basically completely from the rest of the MCU. And I think was the best thing the MCU has done in a while uh, as a result of that. So I, I appreciate that Hudson Hawk did its thing and did it the way that it wanted to do it and didn't let, you know, the pressures of this big budget really get in the way of it wanting to tell its story the way it wanted to tell it with these big, bold, colorful, crazy brushstrokes and to let a guy like Bruce Willis, who this is his only writing credit, to let him have the freedom to get involved in the creative process, to let him and Danny Aiello just have a musical number a couple times in the movie for, you know, just the, the hell of it. And to to play the whole thing out, too, because you could be like, hey, these two guys are going to sing the song and that's kind of their timing mechanism and you get the point and now we're cutting to the explosion. But, but they focus the energy on the things that it seemed that the cast was having fun with. And I think a really good example of that is the uh, paralysis darts in the apartment at the end, not the end, but like the the final act, I would say they think they've gotten away with it. The, the rogues gallery busts in and they dart them in the neck with these paralysis darts and they're, just stuck on the couch and then eventually on the floor and sort of this whole thing of them trying to get enough feeling back in them. Uh, and that ho- the way that whole thing is structured and the lady falls with the the dart thing and he blows the dart back the he opposite back, direction yeah. and she gets paralyzed. And then she's like complaining that she got outsmarted by a nun or something. It's such a weird scene that really, I think embodies like not just the colorfulness and the humor, but like the physical slapstick nature of the comedy as well and it really hits the nail on the head there and it, it was so much fun watching this his shoulders are kind of bouncing up and down and he's kind of like trying to stifle a laugh and Bruce Willis goes uh, 
there's better big tears coming out of your eyes. And Daniela was like, they are. And it's clearly the least <laughs> pretending to cry. It's such a great moment. Yeah, I, I really had a great time. When you're, t- when you're talking about things being ahead of their time, one of the notes I have that Bruce Willis' haircut was definitely ahead of his time. Uh, he had that kind of peaky blinders fade up to the back and sides like 30 years before that was the thing. But I think the whole thing feels like probably like Bruce Willis homage to everything that he liked about movies because like I don't know if he ever referenced this or anything like that, but it does feel like a lot of the slapstick stuff feels very like teeny and then, like, he dresses, like, obviously, in his mind, the coolest people were, like, the guys from the Rat Pack, because he dresses like a man from, like, the 40s and 50s, and, like, really high-waisted pants and, like, the, the T-shirt, and he's, like, four earrings in one ear. And he's, like, this is clearly what Bruce Willis thought was really cool in 1991. And even the, when he goes, uh, he goes to buy a tuxedo for the auction, and it's just the most, like, garish, weird-looking tuxedo you've ever seen in your life. But, Crucially, and I said this to my wife, I was like, Would well, you look at that tux? And no tie or nothing. And then I said, Bruce Willis obviously thought this was cool because nobody makes a joke about how silly that tuxedo looks. <laughs> that's that's a good point. He actually talks about like his brand new tuxedo being in jeopardy as they uh they wheel <laughs> him away if dangling out of the back of the ambulance. So yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's not too many actors that are going to have the confidence to like pull that off, like with the earrings, and then to think like the hat, vest, t-shirt, yes, circular sunglasses combo. Like I'm looking at some of the pictures on the poster, and it's like if you just if the, if this is not a comedy, like Bruce, this is Bruce Willis as a villain in some other movie with the glasses and the hat. I'm like, that's a very yeah. It's almost like uh, Natural Born Killers. He looks a little bit like Woody Harrelson in that. Um, so. Yeah. I like that there's no real like identifying look for Hudson that sticks either. Like he's always looking different, like as the movie goes on and it's just, he's progressing through his different preferences. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think like, as I said, looks like the costumes are generally very good across the board. It's just something that even like that. James Goldberg and his green and red camel at the end. When he's he like, <laughs> such a, Distinct choice for like cameras, but yeah, it, it's 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 a good looking film. Uh, and even like Richard E. Grant's suit and Andrew Bernhardt's costumes are really like perfect for that character. Yeah, I think that's why I kind of like felt almost like these are like Batman villains because like the costuming is good. It's just elaborate and it's eccentric and colorful. Uh, kind of like maybe Dick Tracy too, where they have a lot of these like big colors, like interesting cuts on the suits, and each character is very visually identifiable by the outfit that they're wearing um mm. so i guess in comparison like bruce willis like kind of dresses normal but i mean like danny aiello dresses like a regular person in this movie like bruce does not yeah. uh i mean Andy mcdowell basically does too but like basically everybody around them doesn't and uh it's just it's a lot of fun it's fun to watch it's fun to look at i think the jokes are much deeper than they got credit for and I don't think the budget uh, maybe not being recouped is the reason that this movie should get the kind of flack that it does. And you and I talked about a lot of movies that are similar in maybe tone or kind of familiar territory. And so I always ask my guests, if you haven't seen Hudson Hawk, 
and you want to give that person, you know, a movie they may have seen that would help them commit to Hudson Hawk, or if they have seen Hudson Hawk, what's another movie that they may like uh, based on that kind of taste? Just very few films like Hudson Hawk. Like, just films that, like, would be, would have elements of it. Yeah, you know, like, like, like an ocean film has that kind of stylized heist element to it. But the Blues Brothers has, like, that kind of, the Blues Brothers would be close, actually. It's kind of like the musical elements, um, there's a kind of a manic energy to it, there's really peculiar non-secular jokes, um, there's action. Yeah, like, it's even though it's different in a way, I think Blues Brothers might be close. Another, maybe, you know, because it's more of an out-and-out comedy, would be like Three Amigos, but it's a weird, it's kind of, it has a weird kind of, it has a weird spoofy feel, but there's a little bit of earnestness and it's kind of an adventure and there's a couple of musical numbers. So it's that, that kind of weirdness, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I like that, actually. I think Three Stooges is a pretty good one because that one had like not just the star power, but the guys that were comedic <laughs> actors in the lead. So you sort of didn't get uh, sold. You couldn't say that you got sold a false bill of goods here. Uh, so I appreciate, I appreciate that recommendation, especially. And uh, I think a lot of people have seen three amigos as well. So it, it'll open up the door, like uh, to, to a wider audience. So I think that's a good one. Uh, I'm glad that you joined the film club because you had come and hung out with us a couple of times when we did the spaces, but uh, I liked your energy and I was like, no, this is a guy we got to get into the chat and uh, get him into the group. So I'm glad you're around and participating and that we were able to come together and make a time to talk about Hudson Hawk. And I think especially with being in a position where we're sort of forced to have a retrospective on Bruce's career uh, because of his health issues, I think I am comfortable saying that Hudson Hawk is an important piece of his career. And I think that if you were to do kind of a comprehensive look at his catalog and pick and choose the movies that you would want from it, I mean, yeah, you got five diehard films, but do you need all five? Eh, maybe yes, maybe no, depending on who you are. But there's definitely you could get one diehard movie and get the picture. Um, whichever one that is, you could pick. But I think yeah. a look back at his career is incomplete without taking a look back at this film and reevaluating it 30 years down the line. So I'm really, really glad that you brought this to my attention. And I'm super happy that I actually hadn't seen it because I had totally confused it with uh, the other one, the boat one. I still can't even remember the name of it. The <laughs> striking, distance. striking distance. Thank you so much. Uh, so, Kevin. I appreciate uh, your time. You know, it's not easy to coordinate when there's an ocean between us and eight hours of time difference. So thank you so much. I will make sure to put uh, your Twitter handle and the band information in the show notes so people can uh, take a look at that and get in touch with you if they'd like. Uh, and is there anything else you want to add before we get out of here? No, just thank you for in your time I know it's kind of very there for you are and thanks for for what you do with me. I think it's a it's a nice community that you have. Um that's has a lot of good personalities and it's kind of 
paying off in the quality of the episodes of this podcast that we're doing now. A lot of fun conversations we have. And hopefully many more to come. Yeah, hopefully so. I know I've got several lined up and I, there was supposed to be like I have my list of who's in line. And I was like, all right, well, Kevin's technically in line here, but I was trying to schedule some other people. and It just didn't work. So I was like, all right, last minute, Kevin, I hope you're ready because we've got to make this happen. A short note. <laughs> yeah, personally, the other side of the world. Yeah, I'm ready to go. <laughs> uh, right. I know. <laughs> um, but again, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, please have a great evening. and. Uh, Maybe we'll do this again in the future. I know there's some other movies out there that we could talk about for sure. So have yourself a good night and uh, we'll be in touch. All right. Yeah. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks again to Kevin for joining me and sharing his love of Hudson Hawk with me and with you. We battled through our audio issues, so you didn't get to hear him tell you about his former band, Cursed Murphy vs. The Resistance, and I'll put that information in the show notes along with his Twitter handle. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you've got a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. I'd also love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love and or would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me on Twitter or Instagram at badmovieswelove, L-U-V. This show is an extension of thescheiss.com, and it is recorded, edited, and produced right here in the home studio by yours truly, and now it's fully integrated in the website, too. So until next time, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies.